Welcome along to this week's podcast, which you're going to hold on a minute. Yep, no Mark and Simon this week. It is myself and Mr. Robbie Collin. Hello. That was fast and furious, wasn't it, that show today? It was. Technically, it technically was fast and furious. I was fast anyway. We were earlier and we were shorter, but we packed a load of stuff in. So here's this week's show. Welcome to the show. As always, we get such words of encouragement for our production team seconds before going on eight. Nothing changes, I like to see. It's Robbie and Edith instead of Mark and Simon. Now, we're on early and the show's a little bit shorter than normal. So we're here until 2.30. Uh, otherwise, it's pretty much business as usual. Nice Absolutely. to see you. Good to see you too, Edith. So much to talk about. So much to so talk much. about. Uh, reviews, what are we going to do? We're doing Fast and Furious 8, uh, The Handmaiden, The Sense of an Ending, The Hat and Garden Job, Cézanne et moi, French title Lovely. meaning what, Cézanne and I. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. And we also have uh, De Rien, and we also have a very special guest coming up as well. Indeed, our special guest is none other than Mr Bill Nye. He's one of the stars of Their Finest, which is actually out next week. You can hear my conversation with Bill in about half an hour's time. If you'd like to, please join in with the show, get in touch Tell us what you've seen, uh, what you've liked, what you haven't liked. Get in touch, usual ways. Email mail at bbc.co.uk or you can text us 85058. You'll also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at Wittertainment. Because of the Easter weekend release dates, mm-hmm. Fast and Furious 8 has already been out for a few days. So oh, a I good know. Good opportunity to... Uh, to discuss a film that is also being reviewed on the on the show. In fact, if you were one of the people at the 9.30 screening last night at the O2 uh, View Finchley Road, I was there with you. It was packed. More on that later. Cinema lives. We are, it does. It's nice to see it with normal people as opposed to... Me. Grump- <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say grumpy critics, of which I do not put you with, by the way. Thank you. Um, we start with the top office. The top office? The top, the top office box the 10. top office box 10. Which starts at 17, 17. this week because <laughs> yeah. uh, at 17 is uh, Raw, the film by Julia de Crino. Um, Mark is an enormous supporter yeah. of this film. As am I. I can't really add much to, to his praise. It's this... Um, it's kind of a body horror film that steers around a lot of the genre conventions. Uh, it's about a vegetarian student who goes to veterinary college and finds certain appetites uh, being awoken as a result of these intimate encounters with both human and animal flesh. Now, it's you know, it's a, I think it's a major directorial debut, as, as Mark has been saying. It's enormously uh, rich and complex treatment of. The, the kind of central metaphor of consumption and meat and, and, mm. and this kind of the, the, the kind of strangeness and intimacy of flesh. And um, I think we've got some correspondence on it as well. It would yes. be a shame, even though it's fallen outside of the, the, the top 10, Which not is a shame. to talk about it. Uh, Gavin says, I'm not a fan of gory horror, so it was with great trepidation that I went to this. The film riffs on Lynch and Cronenberg, but at the same time clearly establishes its own identity. At no point does it tell you what to think, but it does ask what you think or what you want to think. The film is beautifully crafted, almost hypnotic and so well executed. Many scenes were watched through my fingers while sat on the edge of my seat and they were not the gory scenes. As much as the horror scenes are horrific, it's the mundane scenes that build the most excruciating tension. One couple walked out of the screen and I was in uh, most of the time but, but my fellow audience were watching so intently the tension in the cinema was tangible and there were several audible... <gasps> Gasps. When you talk about a movie being visceral, I think this is a potential benchmark for the definition. What a great email. Uh, John Turner, thank you very much indeed. Says, Happy Easter. After seeing it, I was a bit uh, nonplussed. But the morning after, 
I'm still haunted by certain scenes. The film contains several close-ups and extreme close-ups which I wasn't desperate to see and was coming across as a comedy for a lot of the audience until about two-thirds in when people were just gripped. I think that might be its strength. It's either a horrible art movie or an arty horror movie. It straddles both genres to become its own thing. I completely agree. And I think what's interesting about it is it becomes this kind of two-thirds of the way through meltdown you know you're watching and i was thinking this is great but there is no way that this film will be able to stick the landing and anchor this back to reality in a way that makes you think oh, okay yeah and the final <laughs> conversation in the film just does that beyond you know my wildest expectations for how it could have been pulled off it is incredibly smart and it instantly almost doubles what you have to think about just in this one conversation so you know i would echo both of those emails i think you know if you can see this we should say as well it was a small release the reason that it's not in the box office top 10 it was only on 77 screens i think it's not a lot but the per screen average was pretty high so yeah. you know if it's hanging around uh, near you then seek then it out do yes please cool. do if you're looking for someone to see this bank, bank holiday, please do. Right, let's get into the actual top 10, shall we? Uh, number 10, it's Logan. Yeah, and I'm really pleased to see how well this is, is doing. I think it's on 23.3 million now, which shows that this, there is an appetite for superhero films that are you know, aimed at a mature audience, but deal with things maturely. Yeah. Deadpool, um, I think at the same stage of its run, had gone past 35 million, so it, it, was, it was doing better. But I think Deadpool, although it was a 15-rated film, it was quite kind of crass and juvenile. And, you know, it embraced being crass and juvenile, but that's what it was. Yeah. Logan is much more serious and downbeat. And, and, you know, the fact that it's doing as well as it is, I think, is really great news. It's just a great story. Uh, Jennifer, who is an atmospheric scientist, reader of comics, says, I've noticed Logan is still in the top ten. Good job it is. Film is much more a human relationship story than about X-Men. I was emotionally drained for several hours after the film and confess I did break the code of conduct through loudly sobbing at times. The film reaches out beyond the X-Men trope and focuses in on real relationships and what makes a family. Wasn't what I expected from a superhero film. It was much, much more. Logan will be Oscar nominated. Wow. 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 Jennifer, will it? Would think? that make it the first superhero film to be nominated? So well, I mean, I it depends. Think of it as they, a superhero film, that's the thing. They get nominated in technical categories. If it was nominated in, you know, one of the craft or the, the, the writing or acting, directing yeah. even, that would be a big benchmark. I think the last one to be nominated in those would be The Dark Knight, possibly which was a while back. Would Mad Max not be classed as a... I mean, I would almost kind of put them in a similar sort of... Yeah, I mean, really, Mad Max Fury would yeah. say it was an action film. Yeah. Uh, but for superheroes, which is its own kind of yeah. fenced-off thing, that the film industry isn't necessarily... I mean, it makes lots of money, but they might not necessarily be over-the-moon proud of it. Yeah. For that to make it, it would be a big deal. Be amazing. Right, number nine. Is Kong Skull Island, which has also been around for a long time. And I think it's great. It's you know, it's, it's the Jurassic film the, blah, 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 the Jurassic Park film that Joe Dante would have made. Uh moving on to number eight and Power Rangers. Which just to me seemed to be a betrayal of everything that Power Rangers stood for. You know, not that it stood for much, but the one thing it did stand for was people in brightly coloured leotards climbing into robotic <laughs> dinosaurs and punching monsters. And that happens in the last 10 15 minutes and you've got this ludicrous preamble of a, more than an hour and a half before it gets to that i just i, I cannot for the life of me understand why anyone has enjoyed this film it's at all. too shiny that's what the thing i love about power rangers about the tv show is the kind of almost like you know the sunset beachness of it in terms of the kind of really bad sets and the kind of you know everything's a little bit naff and it's just i don't want it to be kind of 
polished and big budget and... But you know, the secret of the TV show was all the action scenes were clipped out of a completely unrelated Japanese TV series. And then they shot all of the high school stuff in uh, California. Yeah. What was it, Angel Grove? It was Something like that, yeah. yeah. And so and just basically cut and paste it together. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it just looks like it's falling apart, because yeah. it is. That's one of the attractions for it. Right, right. Uh, number seven, uh, Smurfs, The Lost Village. Yes, which I haven't seen, but I gather plays very well to people who are the size of Smurfs. You're seeing it at 2.35. I've bought you tickets <laughs> to see it. Uh, and number six, a new entry this week then. Going in Style, which is a remake of an early Martin Brest caper from 1979 about these, well, the original film. Yeah. It was about three old-timers who decided to rob a bank just to spice up their retirement. The new film kind of puts a topical spin on it, and it's you've got Michael Caine, uh, Morgan Freeman and Alan Arkin, who have various grievances with uh, their bank because the mortgage rates are being uh, jacked up through the roof and um, business as well. Their pensions are being wound down because the company's being sold off. And so there's this idea that these three guys, they decide to rob a bank because they're getting revenge on the corporate elite who are taking their money from them in, in, in the first place. Now, to me, this is a, you know, you've got this incredibly, really legendary core of three actors and their particular talents are sort of reduced to party tricks in this for me. You know, you have Michael Caine doing his tearful finger pointy speech at the union meeting where he realises his pension's going to vanish. But you just feel like Zach Braff, who's the director, has said to him, oh yeah, that thing that you do where you kind of point and get tearful, we just want you to do that here. And so they do it. For fear of spoiling the original film, I'm going to be quite circumspect about this. It's worth seeking out if you can do. Um, the title Going in Style actually pays off. I mean, this idea these guys are coming towards the end of their lives and this is a kind of a last blast of excitement for them. It pays off in a way that is courageous and it's a courage that this new version just completely does not have. Okay. It betrays the absolute purpose of the original film. Well, we've had a, a correspondence from John Mills. Good afternoon, John, who says, Going in style was all a bit safe, a bit twee, a bit beige, but will appeal to cinema goers that just want something simple and non-threatening. Much preferred the British version, Golden Years. More humour and wit in that one. It's weird because the thing that I question is when you get to a point with uh, with your life uh, for actors, and you mentioned it, Michael, Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, Alan Arkin, three incredible, exceptional actors who can, you know, they've got acting shops. Why are they not being given a great vehicle that allows them to do that, that incorporates comedy, that's not predictable and it's not just safe, like John John said? Yeah, well, I think to an extent, the film that uh, Michael Caine did with Paolo Sorrentino, Youth, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't completely in love with the film itself, but I think for Michael Caine, that's yeah. a terrific performance and a really great example of how he can do his Michael Caine stuff, but in a context that's going to honour it and it's going to, to not make it look like a cheap rehash of stuff that you're used to him seeing. And even in these, you know, incidental roles like in the, the Dark Knight trilogy, Christopher Nolan's work. Yeah. You know, Nolan gets to something in Michael Caine that I think few other directors do. And even if he's showing up in a bit part, it always feels like it's been worthwhile him turning up. Yeah, you remember him. Uh, right then, going in style at number six at number five. It's Get Out, which I just completely loved. And I think mm. that the this is a horror film in which um, a young black photographer goes to meet his girl, his white girlfriend's parents at their rather glamorous country estate. And when he gets there... In a similar style to The Stepford Wives, he realises that things are not perhaps quite as safe as they seem. These parents are not overtly racist, but they are racist in an insidious, liberal way that is particularly excruciating. I mean, what's so great about the film is because it does develop into something horrific. But until it segues into what it segues into, 
<laughs> Everything that happens is very plausible and very measured, and, and you can completely imagine this panning out in a normal social encounter. Um, I think something that the film gets incredibly right is this what's what's called code switching, which is this idea that to talk to people of a different race, you have to adopt a slightly different register. And something that Daniel Kaluuya, who plays uh, the, the lead character, Chris, he calibrates that with total subtlety when he talks to um, his girlfriend's parents, uh, black housekeeper and their black gardener. He talks to them in a subtly but very perceptibly different way to how he talks to um, the, the white people around him as well. It's very, very cleverly done. And I think the metaphor at the heart of it is very wide-ranging and it's radical and it leaves you with a lot to reflect on it sh it should be kind of predictable shouldn't it in terms of the when you look at the the synopsis of the film but that's what i think is brilliant about it subtlety is the the word that you used to describe you know you were just talking about there and i think that the subtlety that they use to unfold everything is just done so well and the thing is, there's a particular encounter towards the end of the film <laughs> where someone arrives and your heart sinks. And in order for your heart to sink, it has to have informed you very subtly what the black American experience is before then so that you know just how dreadful this arrival might prove to be. Yeah. And that was the moment that I knew how, how cleverly this film had got its claws into me. Wicked. All right, that is at number five, Get Out. At number four, I haven't seen this yet. Ghost in the Shell, yeah. which we've kind of, on, I haven't, but previously on the show, you know, Mark and Simon have spoken a lot about and I kind of feel the film has been slightly talked into the ground. Um, one thing I would want to um, flag up, this is an adaptation of a manga series by Masamune Shiro, which has been previously adapted into a couple of feature films by Mamoru Oshii and also a spin-off television series as well, an animated series. Um, called Standalone Complex. And there's all sorts of other works adapted from this thing. The big controversy around it is that Scarlett Johansson had been hired to play a character who was Japanese, Motoko Kusanagi, in the original series. I think, while generally this issue of whitewashing is, is absolutely worth addressing, there's a particular issue with racial representation in anime that makes it incredibly complex in this situation. So yeah. I would urge you, if you're at all interested in this, uh, read an article that was written by Emily Yoshida on, on The Verge. It was published in 2016 when Ghost in the Shell was first, I think, the publicity started to build up with that. The first shot of Scarlett Johansson as the major was released. And that really delves into the, the complexity behind racial representation, specifically in anime. I think my problem with the film on, on those grounds is that it could have worked had it not made this kind of attempt to explain it within the universe of the film. Why is this character white rather than Asian? And that, to me, it just looks like back covering and yeah. it, it makes it 500 times worse. When there's any kind of explaining going on within a film, it's kind of like, yeah, OK. Yeah, I mean, and it sounds like they sat down in a room and said, OK, we need to address this. And actually, if they'd been more conscious of the background of the material, they might have realised they could have, you know, not done. Talking of anime, at number three... <laughs> Slightly different. Yeah, Peppa Pig, my first cinema experience. What which, was your first cinema experience, by the way? The first one I remember was The Jungle Book. Yeah, mine was the Fox Disney and the Hound. This is Disney, you yeah. know. This is, they have such a responsibility when it comes to ushering children into cinema. Everyone's first experience was Disney, I think. I was on the balcony, front row, pushed my drink over 
by mistake. So someone underneath me did not have a happy experience with the fox and the hound at St Andrew's Picture House. Sorry. Peppa Pig then. Yes, this wasn't screened for critics and I haven't gone along to any of the screenings, so I, I haven't seen it. Well, I have some correspondence from someone who has. Great. From Rosie Thomas, aged one and a half. Lee Thomas, aged 32 and a bit in Wigan. Thank you. My one and a half year old daughter and I have just returned from watching Peppa Pig, my first cinema experience. She loves Peppa Pig at home and I thought she would. this would be the ideal for her first trip to the cinema, especially as the title was very apt. I was pre-warned about the film being non-code compliant as it contained sing-alongs and bits where we had to join in with the dinosaur roars and animal sounds. Luckily, we were the only two people in our screen, so that was fine. Rosie had some snacks, cheese as well as chocolate and orange biscuit cakes, but I'm not getting into that argument, to keep her occupied during the extremely loud trailers and commercials. Once her first cinema experience began, she sat in her chair or on my knee throughout and joined in some of the sing-alongs, whilst always asking for Daddy, not me, but her favourite character, Daddy Pig, who didn't show up until the fifth story. The live-action Peppa Pig and George seemed a bit creepy, reminding me of terrible fancy dress costumes often seen around Wigan on Boxing Day, and Rosie seemed a bit confused by them. Overall, the film kept her entertained until about five minutes to go, when she thought exploding the aisles would be more fun, and I decided it was time to go. <laughs> Thank you, Rosie Thomas and Lee Thomas. Here we go. Doesn't really tell us much about the film apart from your one and a half year old was bored. So thank you. <laughs> what does that say about the film? We'll leave it there. Uh, that's the number three, the number two, Beauty and the Beast. Which continues doing very well. Look, I think it's the best of the live action adaptations. I was really, really impressed with it. I think obviously it's not going to supplant the original, but yeah. it's a nice accompaniment to it. It's almost like going to see the stage version. You know, you're aware that it's based on this kind of legendary animation from the 90s, but it still stands up as a worthwhile experience in its own right. Liam and Chelmsford thought that Luke Evans and Josh Gard were far and away the best thing about the film. They enjoyed the Le Fou Gaston arc. The other additions and alterations only served to make the film flabby and unstreamlined. Wow. Number one. The Boss Baby. Oh, we went to see this the other day. My four-year-old and seven-year-old laughed their little butts off. They just laughed in a way I haven't heard them laugh, actually. You? Well, much. I think I might just be opposed on principle to a culture in which a film called The Boss Baby can even exist. And so I came to it with maybe, I don't know, it, it just the idea that you're stringing out a children's picture book. You know, I think the original book is something like 40 pages. And the premise is that this baby arrives in this young couple's lives mm. and makes demand upon demand upon demand. Now, that's a really funny idea. And you can imagine a studio like Pixar thinking, OK, we need to now build a conceit that will allow this idea to develop and grow as they did in Inside Out. You know, Inside Out is a film to which the boss baby was compared by a correspondent on last week's show, I think. Um, this idea that, you know, you're talking about the breaking down and restructuring of someone's personality at the absolute cusp of adolescence, which is an incredibly sad and moving, but also, you know, an experience full of promise and hope for the future. And... Pixar have found a way to illustrate that in this live action thing. So, so they've said, you know, this is what this film is going to be all about. The equivalent conversation at DreamWorks for this seems to have been what this film is going to be all about is a baby in a suit. And that's it. You know, the joke is always this is a baby wearing a suit who's talking like Alec Baldwin. It's Alec over Baldwin voicing a baby. Again. Itself is just brilliant. I, I, we we just, yeah. I mean, I. I, I, my two boys, okay, who definitely have their moments, they're four and seven, they get on sometimes, sometimes they loathe each other. They were really nice to each other after we came out of this film. I don't know, it had a little effect on them. 
Timothy Neal says the boss baby is better than it should be given the trailer and concept. As someone who's seen all of DreamWorks feature film output over the last 13 years, I definitely think they've made worse. Lee says, I took my two daughters, Katie and Lisa, aged 12 and 9 respectively, to see a screening of Boss Baby last Saturday in Bromley. After the bombarding ad campaign over the last few weeks, expectations were that, at the very least, we would get some competent slapstick and a few jokes for the parents. The film bored the pants off us all. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Oh, last, last minute one. Sorry. Dear the Bench Warmers. I like that. It's a good name for a band as well. Uh, the Boss Baby is an inventive, fun family flick with a genuine understanding of how a child's imagination works. I like the imagination stuff as well. It reminded me all too much of being a rug rat, playing with my friends and family as pirates or Jedis or maybe a curious mix of the two. The animation is great, especially some of the camera angles. I realised that camera angles don't exist in animation, but I couldn't think of another term for it. Overall, I just had a great time. Thanks, Stephen Garnett. Yeah, well, look, I would say the particularly the backgrounds owe a lot to uh, an artist at Disney called Mary Blair who was who was there um, in, in the sort of mid-century post-war period yeah. and her particular artistic style was so influential on what Disney produced at the time and now you can see it's reaching out into other studios and you know you will rarely meet a young animator who is not in the thrall of Mary Blair's work so I, I appreciate that influence I recognise it I like the fact it was there um, all right, well, listen, we're going to try and squeeze in one review if we can. If yes, right, let's talk about Cézanne et moi, which is a film by uh, Danielle Thompson, who's a French director. I think the only film that she's previously had released in the UK was 10 years ago, a comedy called Orchestra Seats. It's about Cézanne is uh, Paul Cézanne, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the famous artist, and the moi is Emile Zola, the famous writer. And the, the film basically explores their enduring but turbulent friendship. It begins when they meet as schoolboys in the 1850s in Aix-en-Provence, And their relationship spans until 1888, which I think was the last recorded letter that Cézanne sent to uh, moi, Zola. Um, And and then the film gives you basically all of that, plus another 10 years on the end of separation and an an attempt at reconciliation as well. Now, what should in theory be interesting about this relationship is the trajectories of the two artists in question. Cézanne came from this very well-off background that allowed him to paint uh, he was never successful in, or recognised in his own lifetime, but he became this kind of father of this whole modernist movement of painting. You know, Picasso and Matisse both paid adoring tribute to Cézanne's work. They said that he made possible what they went on to do. Uh, Zola grew up poor, on the other hand. He was the son of an Italian labourer, and he was successful and became this kind of socially climbing talent whose work was very much of its time, but didn't have that same ringing through the future effect that Cézanne's paintings did. Yeah. So you have this sort of bisecting of two talents and bisecting of trajectories that should be dramatically interesting. And you have two pretty good actors backing up. Guillaume Canet, who's better known over here as Mr. Marion Cotillard, but he, yeah, he did a film called a Tell No One. Actor. He plays um, uh, Emil, 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 Emil Zola. Yeah. And uh, Guillaume Gallienne plays, um, who was in the Yves Saint Laurent biopic from a yeah. few years ago, he was Pierre Berger. Uh, he plays Cézanne. And, you know, they're kind of quite beard-based performances. The, time, the passage of time is mainly shown by these kind of pieces of candy floss on their face getting, you know, bigger and greyer. Beard girth. But they're perfectly fine. The, the problem with the film, I think, is the problem that faces a lot of these films is that when you're making a film about geniuses, why would you do that if you weren't going to try and explain where that genius came from? You know, mm. what was it inspired by? Where did it grow from? You know, how did it manifest? How was it received at the time? And, you know, films like Mike Lee's Mr. Turner did that perfectly. Yeah. Uh, Maurice Pialat's Van Gogh as well. And there's a really great one called, um, about Edvard Munch by a director called Peter Watkins, which is absolutely ex- an example of how this stuff 
should be done. When you can't engage with that or when you just you try and fail, all that you're left with is biographical detail. And that's what this film is. It's just a story about two guys who are good friends, who keep falling out, they drift apart, they come together. And so for me, it just felt like an incredibly superficial engagement and a very safe engagement with two artistic talents that were anything but safe. Shame. Waste. Yep. basically. Now, before we get into Bill Nye, I've got to uh, make an apology to Andrew in Belfast, who's a dog sitter. Hi, Andrew. Dog sitter, I just got today's guests, a St Bernard, an Airedale, a Golden Retriever, a Collie and two Crossbreeds. In my mind, too many dogs for one person. Settled down so I could enjoy the show. Then Edith's meowing during the box office top ten sent them off. The house is now a cacophony of demented barking. Thanks for that. <laughs> Shall I address the balance? Woof. There we go. Okay. Um, sorry about that. Commitment, that woof. I think. I'm not going to woof anymore on the radio. Um, six dogs. That is a lot for one person. A dog's purpose is a film that we should maybe not talk about right now. What we will talk about is their finest, which is the new film from Loni Sharfig. It's actually out next week, so you're. Yes, we're Sanji. talking about it on next week's show. Uh, it was Sanjeev, but I was lucky enough to uh, head down to chat to the wonderful Mr. Bill Nye. Walter, a word. I fully understand the national importance of what we're shooting, and obviously there's no question of, of diluting the message. I just wonder if it, if it mightn't pack a little more punch if, if Mr. Brown were to express a little more. For example, at the mention of the clever code, I might say, well, that'll be the first clever thing April's ever done in her life. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see? So, uh, just, a, just, a, just a dash of... of of, of humour, and then further Excuse along. Excuse me. Hello. It's just that the caption at the end's going to be, he's not listening, but the enemy might be. It's a joke for women who think their husbands never pay attention. So if you start answering her, well, the caption won't make sense. I wrote it, the scenario. I'll be in my dressing room. That was a clip from their finest, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by one of its stars, Mr Bill Nye. Hello, sir. How do you do? I'm very good, thanks. Um, can you tell me how you would describe the film? Tell me about the film. I think the film is a great night out. Um, it's thoroughly entertaining. All of this sounds like PR. None of it is. I feel uh, seriously uh, proud of what we've done. Set in 1940 during the Blitz, it's a film about making a film. Um, one of those films that they made to keep people's spirits up and to, to deliver certain information so that people could keep themselves safe during wartime, which was a brutal time that time for which a lot of people, including me and my generation, I was born just after the war, have a kind of deep nostalgia for that time, which I think is something to do with a simplified life where people were united against one danger and that, uh, and that the usual confusion and conflict and static of everyday life was kind of unplugged for a while. I think that's what it's for. Anyway, it's, it'll make you laugh, make you cry, and it gives you something to think about on the way home. Boy, will it make you cry. Yeah, That's I know. all I'm saying. And that's, all that's, you, all that's all you can say. All I can say. Say nothing more. <laughs> um, your gorgeous and wonderfully talented co-star, uh, Gemma Artisan, said oh, that yeah. your involvement was a big draw for her to, ah. to get involved in this project. What was the big draw for you? Well, before I knew that Gemma was in it, which would also, I would say exactly the same thing about her, uh, all I knew was that there was a script coming and it was coming from Lona Scherfig, the great Danish filmmaker. And I, we, she and I had tried to work together before on a couple of occasions. It hadn't come on. So this, I was already excited. And then good scripts are rare. And when this one turned up, it's a cracker. And the, it was a killer combination. 
Good scripts are rare. That's interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, they're rare like everything else is rare, like, you know, good blues or good poetry or good, you know, whatever. I mean, it's it's and, and perhaps rarer than most things. Screenplays are to get a really good one and anything of this quality is really quite rare. I think as well with this film, as, as well as, you know, it's it's not one thing. It's so many wonderful, lovely little things that, that make up the film and relationships is a big part of the film. And one of the the key relationships in the film, I think, is you and Gemma's relationship and how that develops. Yeah. Um, would, would you agree? And, and well, how I'm would you very, describe that, I, I, that I hadn't thought of it like that, but I'm very pleased that you should say that. And, and it is important because he is a pompous, you know, Wally. And He's she, brilliant, though. He's fabulously, like, just hilarious. Well, thank you. But, he, uh, but she plays him really cleverly <laughs> and she flatters him and she manipulates him in a good way. And, and they do, they have a proper story and, and he does develop. And you do, by the end, you think, well, he's not entirely, you know, an in, uh, a mess and that he does have some awareness of what's happening around him. So, yeah, it's a great part. The, um, the notion as well of it being set, you know, um, in 1940s wartime Britain where most of the young men are, are off fighting and you know the opportunities for for older men and women were available suddenly there was there was things that these two different sets of people could finally do or develop and stuff which is a great narrative to explore within yeah. a film i think as well yeah particularly for women because women got to do things that they would never have done before traditionally and uh, i think it was kind of the beginning of feminism in as much as you you know that you took that you allowed that genie out of the bottle and it's very very difficult to get it back in and um you know, this is a period, as you know, having seen the film, where, where male screenwriters referred to anything that a woman said in a film as the slop, uh, which is mentioned in the film. But also, I happen to know that they also referred to it as the nausea. So that was 1940. And that's what men would re routinely make that remark. That's what it was called. That's what women talked. They talked nausea stuff. So um, it's important, I think, for people to know where we've come from and how much... Uh, we've travelled since then. There's a line that Gemma's character says as well, where she oh, oh, she's involved in a, a bit of dialogue, which says, "Oh, you know, obviously we can't pay you as much as as the male screenwriter." And it's kind of these are still themes that are, yeah. you know, relevant today and and discussions that are still going on today. The idea that you could pay a woman less for doing the same job as a man is breathtakingly um, ridiculous. And how the flaming hell anyone ever gets away with it, I don't know. <laughs> Playing two characters within a film as well must be an interesting prospect for you know a film within a film. Yeah, I think you know there was there was a long queue for this job. You know what I mean? There there would be a queue of actors two thousand men long, because uh, yeah, I, not only do I get to play the um, the appalling Wally, but I also <laughs> get to play the part that he's playing in the film that we're making in the film that you're watching. I get to play drunken Uncle Frank. And uh, it, what's amusing is that he hates the idea because he's in almost total denial about how old he is. And he still thinks he's going to be offered the young romantic lead <laughs> as if. Uh, and when it's gently explained to him, or not, not so gently, actually, by Helen McCrory, that he's, he's got to play Uncle, Uncle Frank, he's appalled until people start saying nice things about his performance. And then everything's OK, <laughs> which is kind of, you know. I love I love his relationships with all those those other characters, be it Helen's character or Eddie Marsden's yeah. character, his agent um, yeah. Sammy. It's it's uh, it just the cast's wonderful. It's well, there you are. You see, that's a that's a credit to Lona Scherfig and also to the script, Gabby Chiappi's script. Yeah, because that's why they're all there. They're, you know, and you can have Jeremy Irons and H Henry Goodman and Rachel Sterling and Helen McCrory and Eddie Marsan and 
you know, all those people, Richard E. Grant, you know, those, it's, it's incredible that all those people are there. Gab, with, with Gabby's script, though, she, she really creates a wonderful balance because it's, it's funny at times, but then it's heartbreaking, you know, by the end of a sentence. Yeah. It's a wonderful balancing act, and it's amazing how they do it, actually. She and Lona have scheduled all that brilliantly so that you do, you do kind of uh, swerve from straight out of quite big laughs into something quite, you know, daunting. Mm. It's, a, it's a great mixture. It's the first time we've seen you sing in public since the Billy Mac days. Yeah, well, I've tried to keep out of trouble, you know. I mean, I've, I did say that I would never put, you know, the British public through that again. But uh, it, And in the script, all it said was they gather around a piano, but Lona wanted to make it, you know, extend the scene. And it's actually turned out to be, you know, the, the girls sing a beautiful song and uh, I get to sing Wild Mountain Time. And if you want to know how that should really be sung, check out Van Morrison's version, which is, in my view, definitive. But it's down to you that that track... Is the track that you sung? Well, it's, it, it, was among, it was amongst a few choices, and, uh, and it veered this way and that. But I, I, it was a song that I thought, you know, I'm not a singer, basically. You know, I'm not a professional singer, so I can hold a tune, but I can't, you know. So I, I did nudge them towards that song because I thought I know how to sing that song, and I wasn't quite sure I knew how to sing the others. <laughs> so I did sort of, um, you know, try without... I tried disguised nudging. It's a lovely moment for the character, though. Yeah, it's a wonderful moment, actually. It's a really, it turned out to be, because he's just singing a song, you know what I mean? He just turns off all being, you know, a Wally or, or all the politics in his head. He just turns it off in order to sing a song, and everybody gets, and it's a, and it's a lovely song, and everyone gets to st- just sit around and listen to a song, and he's not some, you know, problem. He's just a man standing there singing a song in, during, in wartime, you know, during, you know, brutal, savage times where you never knew quite who was going to be left around in the morning, you know. So it's a, it is a great opportunity just to see him do something simple and, you know, uncomplicated. And, you know, and as, and as well as he can, kind of thing. I'd quite like to see more of you around a piano singing. Salute. That can be arranged. <laughs> you bring the piano. <laughs> You'll bring the singing. I'll bring the singing. <laughs> um, the, the the love actually uh, revisiting it for comic relief was a wonderful success um and was it was it just a case of richard you know phoning up and saying i've got this idea i think we could now's the time um and asked you to yeah. to join everyone and yeah and it was great because nobody hesitated because no you know they all get it it's for comic relief richard's other great achievement apart from the movies that he's made and it's sweet that the two great enthusiasms in his life should dovetail in that way they raised mm. They raised more money than they ever have done before. I'm not saying that's solely because of the Love Actually thing, but it was, you know, it contributed. And it was great to see everybody. And, you know, and we were at one point, we had a big dinner at the end and everybody was in the same room. And, no, and they hadn't been in the same room for 14 years. And they were in pretty good shape. Everyone was in pretty good shape. And it was very, very nice to see everybody. Hugh Grant came, obviously, and Chiwetel Ejiofor and Andrew Lincoln and Lucia and Colin Firth and Kira Knightley and Martin Freeman. And it was lovely to have everyone. And because uh, it, it is... It was so, I mean, it, you know, I knew that when we were making it, uh, if, it if, if we didn't mess it up, it was going to be, you know, it was going to get a great deal of attention and it, it was a Richard Curtis film and it was going to make probably lots of money and things of that kind. But you didn't, nobody would have predicted that it would have entered the language in the way that it has. So it was the first time that we'd all been in a room together after that happening. Mm. So it was kind of very, it was very good value. 
I had a very expensive dinner by the sounds of it. Well, yeah. Well, it was actually Emma Freud cooked it, so and she's a pretty good cook. So uh, it was around it was around her kitchen table. It's interesting in terms of you know the the, the character that you you play in the in the film Ambrose and and he being this character who's you know who's who's desperate for these roles to fall on his lap and and you being an actor who's who's just seems to have this wonderful collection of of fantastic you know, films that we've still yet to see for the rest of this year as well. That's a great place to be as an actor. Yeah, I'm beyond fortunate, you know, that I get... A, but the, the, the fact that I get a variety of roles is, uh, is, is unusual and, uh, and I'm very grateful for it. It's a sort of accident, I think. It, or actually, it was born of my, my agent when I was younger. I was never very good at taking myself seriously in sort of, you know, uh, sort of straight leading man roles. I was never, or, or taking myself seriously in a romantic context I was useless in that so she used to send me up for sort of unlikely things think counter casting you know things that I wouldn't normally be considered for and I would get some of them and some of them would involve speaking funny or different or something and I would I'd pick up a few jobs and so I think from there on I you know I I, I could be called on for a variety of things but yeah I mean you know and I've worked with some of the greatest writers you know, as we've discussed, and, and, uh, and I'm very, very fortunate. And coming out soon, uh, Stephen Woolley, who produced this film with Amanda Posey, he's also produced The Limehouse Golem, which is an adaptation of Peter Ackroyd's book Dan Leno and the Limehouse Golem. Golem means demon or monster in Jewish folklore, and it's 1880. There's lots of fog and blood, and Danny Mays, the great young English actor, and I, I am... And I get I get a stupid bang out of saying this. I am Detective Superintendent John Kildare of Scotland Yard. Check me out. And Is it the Scotland Yard bit that really it's gets the you whole out? rhythm of it? It's the it's the Kildare as well. There's something about being John Kildare which I get a stupid amount of pleasure from. And uh, and Danny plays my constable, as I like to think of him. He plays George Flood, and we go around London looking for clues. And Olivia Cook with an E, the great young. British actor, actress who has just been picked up by Steven Spielberg for his new big movie. She's our leading lady. And also I've, I'm involved in an adaptation of a Penelope Fitzgerald novel called The Bookshop, which stars the amazing and wonderful and beautiful and gorgeous Emily Mortimer and has been adapted and directed by the great Spanish film director Isabel Quaget. So those things are wow. on the way. What is the? What do you look for in a, in a project... Is it, is it, I don't know, is it a challenge? Is it a, is challenge. It a co-star? Is it a director? Or does it just depend on each project? If you want me to go missing, just say <laughs> the word challenge because, okay. you know, I'll become history. I'll become a memory. I, I, you know, I mean, I know you're supposed to want challenges, but I actively avoid them. I mean, I've had enough blooming challenges, I, I find, that I feel, you know, in my view. Uh, people say, you know, I'd, oh, I, you know, I'd hate to get typecast. I can't wait to get typecast. You know, imagine <laughs> doing the same thing every day when you went to work. It'd be dreamy. <laughs> but uh, what was your question? Um, what makes you say yes to a project? Oh, what makes me say yes? Well, just you know, if the script's any good, the level of writing, you know, and if uh, you know, I I do. It's true because I'm a tart. I shamelessly trawl <laughs> it for gags. That's probably the first thing. Whatever the subject, there's got to be a joke in there somewhere. Uh, and if I can find it, uh, but also, no, just seriously, just a, you know, a level of, of writing and things that you think will be broadly speaking uh, a good thing in the world, you know, rather than you know a nuisance um, and something with a good part, and then you get into the 
other considerations like you know who's directing it and who might be in it and things of that kind. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Oh, it's just like want to just hang out with him all the time. He's so nice and like as he says, not not he doesn't describe himself as dreamy, but yeah. It's brilliant. Very eloquent and lovely to listen to. He's, yeah, you could you could just kind of listen. And he mentioned El- Emily Mortimer there that he's he's got a, a project coming up with who I think's I mean Heart of the Newsroom. I don't know if you watched that that TV show. It was fantastic. And this thing that she created with her friend um, Dolan M, which was a great thing. We'll talk, be talking about her new film, Sense of an Ending, before the end of the show today. Yes, there is another Bill Nye connection to the Sense of an Ending as well, and that is that um, along with Jim Broadbent, he's one of a generation of British character actors who. Worked uh, with a director called Ken Campbell, a stage director, um, a very long time ago. And the influence of Ken Campbell, when you see, because he kind of, his, his work was incredibly odd and eccentric, and it kind of stitched this seam of lunacy into a certain tier of character actors. Toby Jones as well, someone yeah. who worked with Ken Campbell a lot. And the way in which you can see people who work with Ken Campbell moving out through the film industry, through television, and bringing that to various projects in different ways, I think is phenomenally exciting. You know, you can sense that in Jim Broadbent's more eccentric character roles. Rachel Weisz as well has worked with Ken Campbell too. You can see that in her work. Toby Jones, of course, you know. So it's this idea that all of this, there was this nexus point of kind of a very peculiarly British craziness in acting at that point. And it's just grown and developed from there. Wonderful. Uh, we'll be hearing from Robbie and Sanjeev next week where you'll be reviewing uh, Bill's film, Their Finest. Can we get uh, another review in before we get some news? Let's talk about the Hatton Garden. Job. Shall we? Doesn't seem that long ago it actually happened. Two years. Okay. Back in 2015, there was a burglary at a safe deposit facility in London's Hatton Garden, which is the diamond district in the city. And it kind of caught the public imagination for a few reasons. One of them was that I think it was the most lucrative burglary in UK history, 14 million worth of um, cash and, and, and jewels were stolen from these safe deposit boxes. It was certainly an audacious burglary. And uh, the, the other one was the unusually advanced years of the culprits. I think the, the, the gang, they were generally in their 60s or older. They had a combined age, apparently, of 448. <laughs> it's so, like a usual Friday in here. So, <laughs> so when this news story broke, there was a lot of discussion at the time that, yes, this would be a great premise for uh, a caper film in the style of the Guy Ritchie turn of the millennium lock, stock, snatch stuff. Saying the word caper scares me. Right, it should. <laughs> OK. Now, I remember that era, the early noughties. And I was a student oh. at the time and would troop along, funnily enough, to the St Andrew's Picture House, same as your new Picture House on March <laughs> yeah. Street, and would sit through whatever the British film industry had come up with that week. And there was a lot of bad copycat stuff, films like Rancid Aluminium. And mm. who calls a film Rancid Aluminium? Rancid Aluminium. And Love, Honour and Obey. And what was amazing was this was, you know, Snatch came out in early 2000. This yeah. was late 2000. So in the course of a year, less than a year, this entire genre had soured beyond recognition and had become useless. Now, Ronnie Thompson, who wrote and directed The Hatton Garden Job, he co-directed a film called Tower Block a few years ago. The aim behind it seems to have been, they've sat down and said, we have to make this film as much like early Guy Ritchie and specifically Snatch as possible. And just in the most pedestrian and obvious way. So you have the gang themselves who are played by Phil Daniels, Larry Lamb, David Calder and Clive Russell. But before introducing them, uh, Matthew Good comes on, who's their younger, sexier handler. And he starts monologuing about diamonds, you know, oh, they're not just a girl's best friend, all this kind of stuff. Very sub-guy Richie um, monologuing at the very start. Then it moves into this uh, theme tune intro where you have this bouncy little bass line going along, these unflattering freeze-flame 
freeze frame zooms on the main cast members' faces. And it's just, you know, transplanting something that worked beautifully in Snatch 17 years ago onto a film that's being made now. And there's got, you know, you've got the non-diegetic bullet ricochet sound effects, cash registers ringing in the background, you know, all this kind of pyong, 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 when people start talking, spaghetti western guitars clanging. So it's like they've gone through the Guy Ritchie trick box. Yeah. And seasoned this story with what's there, regardless of whether it suits it or not. Um, we've actually got, you know, this kind of Ritchie-esque wordplay. Here's a clip in which Matthew Good starts to sell the idea of the heist to his would-be collaborators. And you can, I mean, it's there. Hello, my son. So, you're missing D-Wig. Oh, yeah. I was more interesting than I thought, though. Don't tell me. You have a job lined up. Big one. I've heard it all before. Everyone who goes inside always meets someone who promises the earth. 99.9% .9 of it is utter Trust me, this is the point one. And you thought of an old git like me? Top of my list. Chop of the pops, eh? <laughs> I'm flattered. I wouldn't be, it was a pretty short list. That's it, Yeah. Much cheaper quite a breath, isn't it? I just want Phil Daniels to, buck, to sort of jump into confidence as a preference for the habitual, <laughs> you know what I mean, crank it at park life sort of thing. That's the thing. All of this is so specifically yoked to this time in British culture, which is not even particularly fashionable anymore. I mean, look, yeah. I, will, I will go to bat for Lockstock and Snatch still. I think they are stylishly shot, very tightly edited, you know, very entertaining films. They just, you know, they've, they've fallen out of style largely because of what happened to the genre after they were done you know yeah. and you can see actually Guy Ritchie himself walked away from that kind of film till I think he sort of needed to to, to write his career after a couple of total disasters with rock and roller so he kind of went back to it a little bit just as a, a palate cleanser yeah but he kind of did it and moved on and to an extent the British film industry at the time didn't because they saw it could be potentially lucrative and it felt kind of stylish and fashionable mm. I will go to bat for those films. I will absolutely not go to bat for this because they've not reflected on what it is they're doing and how this story is really going to adapt to cinema treatment. Now, you've got a heist here, most of which takes place in a basement, in a corridor, with six men watching a drill, or five men watching a drill, rather. Now, that's not in any sense cinematic. You have to somehow dress that up, develop it, put new things into that to, to, to make it exciting. And the film just manifestly fails to do that. What you're watching is literally boring. It's a drill boring a hole through a wall. <laughs> boring, 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 boring. And boring, boring, boring is what it is. There's this other attempt to dress up with um, some kind of topicality. Matthew Good's character talks about how he, rather than robbing banks, he robs bankers now. So, you know, we're getting revenge on Here the banks. Here we go, yeah. But it's not, you know, it, if you look at what Richie... And I'm, by the way, I'm aware, I keep on talking about this in reference to Guy Ritchie films. There is no other way in which to talk about this film than in reference to Guy Ritchie films. But you have this idea that, you know, you've got the card sharps in, in Lockstock who suddenly find themselves... Uh, owing this unpayable debt to this, this, this terrible criminal syndicate. Or in Snatch, you have uh, Jason Statham's character being dragged under, you know, again, in the thrall of terrible gangsters. Yeah. That just doesn't happen. You know, the structure isn't there, the style isn't there. Well, he did. You know, Richie definitely just developed a style that, that you say can only be described as the Guy Ritchie style. So 
Here we go. Well, you definitely not encouraged me to go and see that one. You're listening to a BBC Five Live podcast. Como de Mayo's film review. If you like this, you might also like this. Fighting talk. This is always quite random, as the podcast extras are. Freebies that you've been given by bands. I got a paperweight from ELO. To find out more about our range of podcasts, click, tap or swipe. bbc.co.uk slash five live. Welcome back. It's uh, Robbie and Edith and from Mark and Simon. And if you've just joined us, we're already more than halfway through the show earlier and shorter than usual today, but never fear. But we've got a, quite a good few films to review in the next half hour, Robbie. What we got? do. We're doing Fast and Furious 8, The Handmaiden and The Sense of an Ending. Where should we start? Let's start with Fast and Furious. Yes! OK. <laughs> you want to start? Go. I've always enjoyed the idea of the Fast and Furious films more than I've enjoyed the execution. Okay. But... I do enjoy the idea very, very much. I think it's interesting if you think back in the 60s and 70s, uh, the James Bond franchise was, you know, you went to the cinema, those films, they took you on holiday and they showed you some beautiful people <laughs> and some fancy gadgets and some, you know, glamorous milieus <laughs> yeah. to continue the French theme. Yeah, merci. And it was all part of the fun, you know, yeah. and that was what those films could do for you. So I love the idea that there is another franchise that can still do that now but with this very progressive, inclusive soul, at the, you know, the, the very, very building blocks of this series, you know, family is the word that comes up again and again and again. So it's something that feels relevant, not like a throwback, but it can still have that at its most basic sort of visceral level, that transporting nature that the Bond films had back then. And that's very much how I view these films. I think what's interesting is when you look as well at the progression of the series back in fast five where they broke out the bank vault and were dragging it down through the streets of rio de janeiro i think it was <laughs> yeah that seemed to be the moment where they thought okay this isn't just about racing cars anymore it's going to be about set pieces and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and yeah. films have of course since then gotten bigger and bigger more cast you know bigger explosions uh, wilder ideas the problem is Around the time of number six, it hit this tipping point where the the craziness got so big that you started to lose the sense that what was happening in front of the camera, there was actually anything happening at all. And it wasn't just some CGI concoction. Mm. And, you know, when you look at the success of films like John Wick recently, um, obviously the, the Raid uh, films by Gareth Evans, and yeah. uh, above all Mad Max Fury Road. There's this idea that Western filmmakers are engaging again with this idea that actually doing stuff for real in front of the camera is a great way to hold the audience's interest. So I think when you come to Fast and Furious 8, having seen John Wick recently, having seen Mad Max Fury Road, the franchise feels weirdly on the back foot, even though it's a franchise that has traditionally been very, very at the, the cutting edge of what people are looking for. The story so far doesn't really matter because at the start of every Fast and Furious film they, they reshake the board and move people around. What yeah. you have in this one is Vin Diesel's character Dominic Toretto who's always been the heart of the team. He decides for uh, reasons that are revealed later in the film he's strong-armed into helping this uh, ingenious expert hacker played by Charlize Theron uh, called Cypher steal the Russian nuclear codes and you know obviously you know, why is he going to jeopardise the, the, the safety of the entire planet well it must be for a very big reason and this reason is teased out and teased out so he turns to the dark side compensating because this is how Fast and Furious works you have Jason Statham's character Deckard who by the way two films ago murdered one of the original team that's now forgiven and forgotten that's in the past he comes over to work with them and uh, his old uh, rival uh, played by The Rock um and they, they just have to kind of rub along. And actually, their 
not even bromance. It's kind of what, what's the, the kind of enemy version of a bromance? Whatever that is, that's really what drives the, the, the core of the team now. Now, here is a clip from a scene in which The Rock, Dwayne Johnson and uh, Jason Statham find themselves both locked in a prison and they spark a prison riot purely really in order to get out of their cells and beat each other up. I mean, do you really believe you could beat me in a straight-up old-fashioned fistfight? Let me tell you something. Me and you, one-on-one, -on -one, no one else around. I will beat your ass like a Cherokee drum. Maybe one day we'll find out. Oh, you better hope that day never comes. Get back to yourself! Whoa. It's just a malfunction. Get back! Just a malfunction! <laughs> <laughs> it is um, infectious, right? It, well, I went to see it last night with my friend Nathan. We went to a screening at half past nine, which was rammed with Fast and Furious fans. Uh, and it was infectious. It was absolutely infectious. It was like being at a carnival. There was whooping, there was cheering. There was, I mean, I find myself at one point when Jason Statham comes on screen of going, yeah, Statham! <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? You're like Thor in that I'm... Ragnarok trailer when yeah, Hulk bursts. I know him! Yeah! Through work! It's like, yeah, totally. I wish I knew him. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's um, it was. I mean, I was waiting for one point for a, a jumping shark. You know, it was kind of <laughs> all it needed was a zombie, and every other genre of film is covered within it. Basically, Look, it's just everything thrown at it. I think the fact that they've worked out what to do with Statham yeah. really speaks very well of, of what the franchise does well. Now, there's a scene late on which I'm sort of loath to to, to give away really what happens on the plane. It. It's on a plane. It yeah. involves Statham acting, well, acting alone in a way. And it's a tribute to, or it's kind of a throwback to a, a very famous action scene directed by John Woo in, in Hard Boiled, I think it was. Um, and that shows that they've kind of worked out that you can have his charm and his sense of humour, but also his completely take-no-prisoners approach to combat. You can reconcile those and make them work together very beautifully. What I really was disappointed by is it was they rarely seemed like there was any real sense of peril because of this overload of CGI. You know, the, the director, F. Gary Gray, he was the guy that did the Italian job remake a while back, which was actually pretty good and, and used a lot of practical effects. In this one, there's a scene in which uh, New York City becomes subject to this uprising of driverless cars who suddenly start... In fact, you said there was no... Raining You said there was no zombies. <laughs> yeah. I think Charlize Theron even says one time, it's zombie time or something like that. And all these kind of, you know... See? <laughs> cars of their own accord start screeching around the place and it's a great idea for a set piece but because it is cgi it looks like you're just watching this river of pixels winding through the city streets mm. and for me you're kind of watching it thinking yes this is funny it's creative but i don't really feel anything's at stake then when you get to this set piece on a russian ice floe it's so clear that they've said we need to do something that's like mad max because mad max has done this so well you know i appreciate the fact that they're going there but it does feel like the franchise is playing catch-up. So, you know, for me, the scenes that work well, you've got the ice flow bit, you've got the street race in Havana that opens the film. Oh, kind of worst bit of the scene. I mean, why do they need the woman with no pants on starting the race? Come on. Oh, it's Fast and Furious. It's Fast and Furious. There you go. You can't, you know, there are certain non-negotiables. I also think it's really interesting, you know, this is the first film they've made without Paul Walker, who, of course, passed away yeah. uh, during the making of Number 7. Um, they have, you know, they pay tribute to his character in the film, but they have fairly unsentimentally brought in a new white, blue-eyed, preppy, upstanding, law-abiding type uh, played by Scott Eastwood to replace, you know, to fulfil, to, to fill the Paul Walker-sized hole on the team. So they are, you know, they're moving forward, they're, they're progressing, they're progressing. 
What annoys me about the series, I know it's not made for critics, but I wish, because it's such a culturally important creation, that they would just kind of take that extra step and make these action scenes count for something as well as being so you know enjoyably wild and silly as they are. Right, let's get some uh, correspondence. Thank you very much to uh, Kevin in Cheadle and Cheshire. I went to the movies tonight with my 14-year-old son, Bill. Uh, Fast and Furious 8 is without any doubt whatsoever the greatest film ever made in the entire history of cinema. I say that as an educated 48-year-old uh, cine-literate lover of Tarkovsky, Goddard and Einstein, and I am only being slightly ironic. Can't remember the last time I was so thoroughly entertained in the cinema. It's the most utterly preposterous film imaginable. To say that they have abandoned any attempt at plausibility or dramatic credibility is to grossly underrate the position my goodness, it's action-packed. More magnificently choreographed action and comic book violence than the whole of Bourne, Mission Impossible, Avengers and uh, the Bourne franchise combined. The broadsheet critics will, of course, be sniffy. Robbie, hands up. It I will mean, get significantly... Sniffy to an extent. A little, a little sniff. Yeah. Uh, less attention than Raw, but give credit where credit's due to this franchise. It knows its audience well and delivers more value for money with each instalment. Roll on episode nine. Car chases on the moon, perhaps? Yes, look, and I think that is it. It does know its audience. I think, was, was that Einstein or was that Eisenstein? Eisen... Eisenstein. Eisenstein, yes. That would make more sense. I mean, Einstein anyway as well. You know, he was there's, a there's clever an man. element of, you know, Eisensteinian <laughs> yeah. montage editing yeah. in the Fast and Furious <laughs> series, arguably. Um, Pete in Cardiff saw it with his teenage son at a midnight show on Wednesday. It was a privilege to fall asleep through most of it, which is quite an achievement given the volume of the soundtrack and shows how uninteresting it was. What little I did see was the biggest load of mindless tosh imaginable. No doubt it will make millions. Uh, Vroom and Crash... Nice, thanks, Chris. Fast and Furious 8 was ridiculous. Stupid, bad signs and plot hole-ridden film and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was probably <laughs> the best of the series so far, which is film 8 is quite the achievement. Statham was hands down the best part of the film and while I may not have laughed throughout the film, I did have a smile on my face all the way through. As long as you know what you're expecting from this type of film, it's well worth a watch. Uh, and then we've got the last one from Adam here who says, being a member of only a short time since January this year, I've come to love entertainment as a daily hobby. Uh, Fast and Furious, I uh, over the last couple of days, I listened back to the review of Fast 6 from the great Dr Mark himself and Fast 7 from the well-spoken Fantastic Robbie. Agreed with everything said on both counts. I've come out of a preview showing of Fast 8 at my local IMAX multiplex and thank goodness I'm out because Fast 8 was nothing less than absolute garbage. The problem lies with what more did we get from this instalment than we haven't already seen before. Plus, might I add, once again, they have showed all the action sequences from the movie in the flipping trailer. Just this time, they've replaced an extremely long runway for extra long ice shrink with a big submarine replacing the plane. Fast 8 felt boring, predictable, very quickly, and what really got me was its laziness. This wasn't a movie, this was a box office paycheck. Wow. Whoa. I'm amazed that you can enjoy 6 and 7 and not enjoy 8, because they all seem to me very much of a piece. I think something that's quite odd as well is that they don't really use Charlize Theron particularly well. well she's a hacker and she's kind well. of, she's in a, a sort of a hacky room for a lot of the film. And, it, you know, you've hired Imperator Furiosa, you know, this is the absolute star of stars from Mad Max. Why would you not do more with her than just have her in this room in barking orders at people? Right, exactly. And with dreads, the dreads just confused me. It's like, oh, she's a hacker. Quick, give her dreads. It's like, what? 
Just bizarre. Uh, right, Fast and Furious 8, which I thoroughly enjoyed last night with all you Fast and Furious 8 fans. Let's move on. What should we talk about next? Let's talk about The Handmaiden, which is the new Let's. film from Park Chan-wook. Now, um, I think he's probably still best known over here for Old Boy, his mm. film from 2003. Uh, since then, he's of course, he's done other things, including Stoker's first English language film very recently, and also Thirst, this really weird sort of religiously conscious vampire film, which was pretty good. Um, this, I think, is his most accessible film that I've seen. I think I've seen everything that he's done, and this is even more accessible than Old Boy, even though, and I'm approaching this film with my heart in my mouth, because it is, I mean, it's an erotic thriller that I think you would say contains some fairly robustly conjugal activity and you know we're going to have to choose our words very carefully in describing it it's an adaptation actually of um, a novel called fingersmith by sarah waters uh, which was set in victorian britain it has transposed to um japanese occupied korea in, in in the first part of the 20th century much more effectively than you could have possibly imagined i think you know it's um it, it fits the park aesthetic very very well um, you've got, so it, it's set in this sprawling mansion that is an amalgamation of Western Gothic architecture and classical Japanese architecture, both sort of bolted together, where you have, um, li living in the mansion, there's uh, Hideko, who's this, um, Hideko, sorry, who's this uh, Japanese heiress who is very kind of vulnerable and slightly in the thrall of her uncle Kozuki. Um, they're played by Kim Min-hee and uh, Cho Jun-woon. And to this scene arrive two con artists, uh, one of them uh, called Suki, who's a young Korean woman who's hired as Hideko's handmaiden, played by Kim Tyree. And the other one is this guy, a, a really seasoned con artist called Count Fujiwara, which is his sort of stage name, played by Ha Jung-woo. And the plan is that he will come in and seduce Hideko and, there, and thereby with, um, with the handmaiden's assistance. So she, you know, when Kent Fujiwara's not there, will reassure Hideko that, you know, this guy's really nice. You. He loves you. He's really into you. This is a wonderful match made in heaven. They get married. He then has Hideko committed to an insane asylum and then he can abscond with her inheritance. That's the plan. Now, to say any more than that... Don't. Is, ..would be a mistake. <laughs> yeah. okay, because the joy of this film, the supreme pleasure of watching it, is that the plot is this magnificently engineered whirring contraption and it's like when you're confronted by one of these crazy clocks in a museum where there are cogs upon cogs upon cogs and you're just watching this stuff spinning around just entranced by how well it fits together mm. that's what watching the handmaiden is like you know it is an erotic thriller uh, it very heavily skews towards the fetish side of things there's lots of voyeurism this is an a, a persistent idea in this film is that people are their true selves when they are on their own and not aware of being watched. So you have a lot of people peeping through windows from behind curtains, through screens, people revealing themselves physically but also emotionally or perhaps performing a striptease that you believe reveals more than it actually does. If you've seen Old Boy, you will know that Park is not averse to some stomach-churning rug pulls throughout his films. There's nothing to quite match Old Boy's final, oh my goodness, head-in-hands moment here. Yeah. However, you will notice, and the, the performances are exquisitely detailed, you will notice seeds being sown very early on, little mannerisms. Um, Suki has a very strange laugh, and you think, well, why? You know, she's meant to be this quite cunning, yeah. uh, manipulative character. Why does she have this very sort of odd, gullible, guileless laugh? You know, she's kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard, it's hard to explain without yeah, explaining why, like but... That. Those sort of mannerisms and micro-behaviours are all very cleverly mapped out so they will pay off later. And actually, about a third of the way into the film, 
There's a wonderful moment where the whole plot just kind of goes whoop, yeah. upside down. It takes your breath away. It does. It really does. Um, My goodness, it's a sexy film. It is. It, it is sexy, but, but I, not in a not in a kind of a kind of gratuitous kind of. Uh, you use the word erotic, and I wouldn't even describe it as erotic. It's kind of it's so tender and beautiful and stylish. And I think those scenes, I looking at them, they feel like kind of like you're looking at raw chicken through a kaleidoscope. It's just like kind of you know flesh sort of turning and being. <laughs> the use of the word. It's maybe raw chicken. It's maybe it's more, wrong... it's more it's more appealing than I'm giving it credit for. <laughs> yeah. a, okay, poor choice. Forget I said that. Okay. <laughs> Remove the image but of raw it is, chicken. <laughs> it is aestheticised in the extreme. There are actually there's two photographers, uh, Ren Hang and Nobuyoshi Araki, um, whose work I think this is probably very consciously influenced by. Before you Google these names, you know, know that their photography is screamingly NSFW. But I think yeah. if you've seen The Handmaiden and you're kind of okay with that strength of imagery, then it's, it's, it's worth looking these photographers up because that's the kind of tradition that Park's working in. He's also working in an overtly gothic tradition, you know, there are echoes of Hitchcock's Rebecca here. In the structuring of this incredible mansion, there are these power cuts that ripple through the building as if the building is a living organism, sort of breathing and coughing with these people inside it. You've also, like the um, uh, the Bates Motel house yeah. in, um, in, in Psycho, the house is kind of structured, so you have on the ground floor, the, it represents the eagle, the bedrooms are the super eagle, down in the basement, basement. the churning id, and it's this yeah. mediation between control and desire and how these two things are reconciled. This is all very vague stuff, and the reason it's vague you is because to, be. to you have to be, because to give away more would be to spoil it. But this is, you know, it's it's a very, very enjoyable film. It's incredibly accessible. It's it's also, you know, it's it's strong stuff. Yeah. But, you know, the, the abiding sense that I had when I came out was not that I'd been shocked or no. offended, but it was just, my goodness, what a story. It's beautiful. And the idea as well that it's based on the novel, which was set in London, but you can't, the, the film would not have been as powerful or effective if it had been set here. It needed that culture and that setting and that kind of, that delicateness that you get with those cultures from... Uh, you know, Korea and, and, and Japan as well to, to really influence it as well aesthetically. And I think sp specifically the joining together of mm. Western and Eastern styles, you know, in the house, the fact that half of it is, got, you know, European Gothic, half of it is classical Japanese. In the rooms, you have this mixture of, you know, there's, there's some Japanese wallpaper, there's some Western wallpaper, you know, the furniture, everything is this amalgamation, this uneasy but beautiful alliance. Mm. That's what the film is about, uneasy but beautiful alliances. I wanted all the costumes and you wanted all the wallpaper. Uh, we've got a lovely email from Leo Adele Johansson, who's 18 years old from Stockholm in Sweden. Hello, Leo. The Handmaiden is an electrifying film with lots of surprises. While being wildly entertaining, it's also really beautiful to look at. I can't remember a single other film where I was as actively thinking, this looks amazing to myself, as watching The Handmaiden. For me, this beats out Old Boy, which is the only other Park Chan-wook film I've seen, and that is also a very solid movie. I hope uh, Robbie doesn't slam it too hard for its potential controversial aspects, the opposite, because I do think that it absolutely served a purpose in convincing the audience of a certain relationship. I would actually rather portray it as a feminist victory. I hope I'm being vague enough. Uh, I saw it maybe three or four weeks ago and it still puts a smile on my face whenever I think about it for all the appropriate reasons. I can't wait to revisit The Handmaiden with such a thrill. Maybe don't go with family members to see this one. <laughs> no, no, can you imagine? No, <gasps> but definitely watch it as soon as possible. If you are not yet into Korean cinema, this is a good place to start as I think it is more approachable for us Westerners than most other Korean films. Do you know someone who told me to watch 
to get into Korean film was Jordan Voigt Roberts, the director of Kong Skull Island. Island. Yes, massive fan of it. Uh, thank you so much for getting in touch. That's a wonderful. There's email. even there's an old boy tribute in Kong Skull Island mm-hmm. where Kong eats a certain creature. There you go. There you go. There you go. Right then, we're almost running out of time, but we should yes. we fit one more. Actually, quickly got a couple of quick texts. John from Sirenster, Fast and Furious Eight has everything you want in a film and more. And now I want to I uh, want to watch this film again, but in 2D. We took our teenage boy to watch Get Out last night, but there were no seats available. The only film with seats available was Fast and Furious. I was so disappointed, but he was eager, and it would have been cruel to go home against all odds. I thought. It was absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad Get Out was sold out or I would never have watched it. I can't believe the bad reviews. Go and see it for yourself. No name on that, unfortunately. But do go and see Get Out as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Right, Sense of an Ending. Let's do The Sense of an Ending, which is an adaptation of a Julian Barnes novel from 2011, which won the Booker Prize. Um, The book is about the difference between history and memory. It's the idea that the past, as we think of it, is something that is curated in our minds, either consciously or subconsciously. And... When we look back on our own lives, we tend to think of ourselves as the main character in our life rather than a supporting character in other people's. And the film is about reconciling those false ideas of the past with the the actual truth. It comes to us via the story of Tony Webster, who's played here by Jim Broadbent. He's divorced and semi-retired. He runs a vintage camera shop. He's got a 36-year-old daughter played by Michelle Dockery, who's about to have a baby. And he's kind of a comfortable curmudgeon in the Jim Broadbent style. However, one day he discovers he's been left something in a will. It's a diary belonging to someone he knew a very, very long time ago. And currently in possession of that diary is a very long-time ex-girlfriend called Veronica, who's played by Charlotte Rampling. His efforts to get back in touch with Veronica force him to reflect on things that he did in the dim and distant past. And here is a typically prickly encounter between the two. Are you uh, married, I take it? I'm not married. Never? Mysterious to a fault. I'm divorced, by the in case you were wondering. I wasn't, but I'm sorry to hear that. On the contrary. Very happily so. Best decision we ever undertook. In fact, she, Margaret, recently accused me of having built a shrine to you, no less. A shop. When I told her that it was you who gave me my first Leica. And what did you say? I told her 36, by the way apart from coming off the rails somewhat and deciding to have a child all on her very own. She works in PR. Whatever that may mean. <laughs> Love Jim Broadbent. So, and, and I mean, first and foremost, this film is a really good shot window for Jim Broadbent's town as a leading man. It's, it's amazing to see him being given a role with this much depth and complexity outside of a Mike Lee film. Basically, the structure is you have this present tense stuff unfolding and then it flashes back to the past from various angles. And it made me think a lot of atonement. There's, in fact, there's a scene where the young Tony, who's played by Billy Hill, drags out a rusty old typewriter to hammer out a letter that will prove very, very important to the plot. And you just immediately think of James McAvoy and his vest, you know. (laughs) There's not a kind of a... Hold on a second. You've got it. Yep, got it. But, you know, a lot of it comes down to the success of this film, comes down to the cast. Jim Broadbent crafts the character with total kind of precision. It's this idea that you're watching someone reconsider who he is, memory by memory, you know, development by development. It's very subtle stuff. But he also equips Tony because he's fundamentally quite an unlikable character with enough Mm. fond little idiosyncrasies that you're still on his side regardless and you're interested in what he comes to discover about himself. I mentioned Atonement, 45 years again. It's another great film that has this reckoning with the past and present. The sense of an ending, it's not anything like as accomplished as either of those films. So the the director, Ritesh Batra, who made a film called The Lunchbox, I think makes a pretty kind of accomplished job of of it. But it's it's just not got that extra sense of total kind of um, 
an almost metaphysical engagement of time rather than spelling it out like a mystery. It does what it does very well. I think it does justice to the Julian Barnes book. Um, but it's, you know, it's welcome, but it's, it's, it's nothing quite on, on a level with this tradition that it seems to be tapping into. It's lovely performances, it's a lovely story. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's not, I don't think it's trying to be anything else, really. Yeah, no, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And you have, you know, Michelle Dockery's really good in it as well. Emily Mortimer and Joe Alwyn in the past uh, section as well. Freya Mavar, who turns out weirdly in Cézanne Moi as well. She's, um, she was in um, Sunshine on Leith, the Dick yeah. Fletcher film. Uh, she turns up as the young Veronica, the young version of Charlotte Rampling's character. So you have, you know, really good cast, all doing good jobs. And these are performances that are unshowy and not necessarily designed to attract awards consideration. Um, but perhaps the film just lacks that extra push of panache to, to push it over the edge and make it a must-see. Well, listen, we might be talking about Sunshine on Leith in the podcast, which you can listen to uh, shortly. So uh, that's it, I'm afraid. It's been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Robbie, movie of the week is? The Handmaiden. Of course it is. Thank you so much for listening. Robbie will be back with Sanjeev next Friday from two with special guest Warren Beatty. Mm, that's it for us. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, next week, Robbie is going to be back with Sanjeev uh, and you're going to be hearing from Warren Beatty, who you met this week and so did I. We both did. I did. We're the Warren Beatty. Maybe he's a listener. We don't know. But he's done a few interviews while he's been in town to uh, promote his new film, Rules Don't Apply. And we both met him, but yeah. not together. Not together. That would be nice to go for a drink with I'll Warren Beatty. With him. Wouldn't it? I mean, I was really kind of slightly perplexed by being in his company it's like we were talking about this earlier he's one of the very few remaining icons of an era that you know is is dying out unfortunately well he, he has been working in hollywood at that level longer than i think anyone who's still working today even clint eastwood he yeah. is um, a leading a young leading man while clint eastwood was still rattling around in television i think before he made the jump to films so the idea that by talking to him you are talking to someone who witnessed all, you know, the, the decline of the studio era firsthand, to me, is amazing. Yeah. Well, listen, you're going to hear more from him next week on the show. First, though, before we uh, bid you farewell, TV movie of the week. Uh, I've got a few here of people who think they've guessed what you're going to go with, be it uh, Sherlock Holmes, in which we serve X-Men First Class, Rescue Dawn, Watership Down, Cool Runnings, Oliver... The Dirty Dozen, Purple Rain, United 93, Sunshine and Leith, Guardians of the Galaxy, VHS. Martin uh, says, surely every self-respecting third uh, bassoonist north of the border, both of them will plump for the earwig masterpiece of the Proclaimers. It's and second bassoonist. Yeah, sorry, can I just stop sorry. to read it? It's second, second sorry. All right, second. Third. Oh, easy. Goodness gracious. We had a nerve there, didn't we? Sunshine and Leith, reckons Martin. My TV film of the week, says Lauren Rose, is the excellent Cool Runnings. Fantastic film, great script. In particular, some really sharp, funny lines. Good performances from all the cast, but in particular, oh, Mr John Candy. Never a dud performance from him. I think Robbie will pick United 93, a sensitive, well-made film. But just the dark subject matter, I find it a difficult thing to watch. Naomi thinks my choice is Sunshine and Leith. Because my lovely friend surprised me with a trip to the cinema to see it to cheer me up, my granddad was ill. And it's still my favourite musical film. I think Robbie's will be either Sunshine on Leith or Cool Runnings. Neil says Watership Down. Bright eyes. <laughs> Nothing quite. He says Easter like a good dose of um, mixed mitosis. The Dirty Dozen is excellent, but it's on every other week, so I'd go for United 93. Uh, Joe Jackson, as much as I love the music, Purple Rain is an awful, awful film. Sunshine on Leith is a close second, but we found Guardians of the Galaxy a joyful experience. Great soundtrack and funny. Kate Moody, it's just too hard to choose. Between a GOTG, which I will abbreviate it to, Cool Runnings and Sunshine and Leith. But if I can only save one film from the waves, 
it is going to be cool runnings. Steve Ferris's Rescue Dawn is underrated, underseen and just brilliant. Herzog, as great as ever. Bale on form, a superb supporting cast and even better one scene alongside Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Robbie, what is your TV movie of the week? Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, Rescue Dawn is underrated and underseen. I would urge people to see that. But my choice, Naomi and Martin, despite your bassoon-based calumny earlier, you're both <laughs> correct, it is Sunshine on Leith. And the what a film! Proclaimers musical directed by Dexter Fletcher. It is on at 3.50pm on Easter Monday on More 4. And it reminds you, or reminded me anyway, that the Proclaimers have become this weird sort of novelty act, part of, you know, the easy end of Scottish culture. Mm -hmm. Actually, their songs, there's a lot going on in them. Lyrically, they're beautiful. You know, tune-wise, they are just catchy beyond belief. And the film teases that out very, very well. You've got people that you might not necessarily think of as singers first and foremost, <laughs> e.g. Peter Mullen, yeah. but really bringing incredible heart and soul to this music. And, um, you know, it's, it's and also as someone who grew up in Edinburgh, the film appeals to me for that reason. But I just think on a bank holiday Monday, you can't really go much better than that. And uh, here's a little quick story about uh, Sunshine Leith for you. When Peter Mullen was recording his vocal in studio, he came in with his girlfriend and Dexter said that he had very kind of, he was like, I'll come in and do it and then I'm going kind of thing. He came in and his girlfriend sat in the kind of uh, the, the mixing booth whilst he did it. And he sung it and everybody was in absolute tears, floods of tears at his performance for doing it. So if that, I bet it's very moving. It's very, it's moving, very moving indeed. Have you ever um, touched Peter Mullen's beard? Oh, no. Because he's, you know, he, he does a lot of beardy roles. It's the softest beard. I mean, it's like cotton Hold wool. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. When and why did you touch Peter Mullen's It wasn't, beard? I mean, it wasn't, I didn't walk Did up you have him. your beard? I mean, because your beard, you know, over the years has grown into something of, of quite a spectacular achievement. That's very kind of you to see. Uh, and I'm a big fan of beard girth. But how on earth did you come across being able to touch It Peter wasn't, it wasn't a case of going up to him and prodding it. Can I touch a beard? It was, it was in the, the in the course of that, what was it? it was the, the thing. I mean, you're was, a tall man. It was like man. a kind of a, an affectionate sort of hug. I don't know him at all, by the way. I, you know, he's not someone that's... I'm wondering you know, whether it was a brush. or anything. Because you're a it tall was man. A, it, was at the, it was something to do with Ned's. I think I interviewed him after Ned's or something and he gave me a hug. And it was just a very sort of... Caressed a, his face. Oh, no, well, you know, we just brushed. It just brushed. <laughs> it was a chance physical dusting okay. you know, of, 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 of cheek to beard. But it <laughs> stayed with me. Wow, it wasn't even your hand, it was your face. Uh, okay, for the next. But that would be more weird if it was the hand, wouldn't it? <laughs> this oh, image of you. Think it through, copying, Bowman. I'm not walking up to him. Copying just, uh, Peter Mullins' beard him. to your hand. Bizarre. Right, I am going to. wonder if he uses beard oil. Do you use beard oil? I never knew of there was course, such a thing like, as no, beard like oil. Army Hammer. It's one of the, it's the beard growers' <laughs> oh, yeah, secrets, isn't right. it? But like Army Hammer and Free Fire. Okay, no. this is going to be the longest podcast in history. <laughs> right, Don't okay, move okay. on. And we actually have something interesting to talk about, so oh, let's, the, let's move on. The phenomenal film that is celebrating an anniversary. I believe that's why it's getting a re release, is it? Or a special release? Mulholland Drive. Yes, that's right. That's right. 2001, it came out. And what a film. It's. Um, you know, last year the BBC ran a poll of, I think, 170-odd critics to ask what the greatest film of the 21st century to date mm. had been. And Mulholland Drive came top. I, I, I was voted in the poll. It was my top choice. It came top overall by quite some distance. So mm. since the film arrived, I think it was generally quite well appreciated on when it first came out. But its reputation as this kind of monumental work of cinema, and certainly, I believe, the best thing David Lynch has ever done by a long way, has since solidified. If you've not seen Mulholland Drive, or, which is kind of even worse, if you've only seen it once, you must, must, must take this opportunity to see it on the big screen. 
it's the the story behind it is i mean it's nowhere near as fascinating as the film itself but it is fascinating in and of itself it was intended as a tv spin-off originally from twin peaks and the lead character was going to be audrey horn uh charlene fenn's character from twin peaks going to hollywood to become a star how it actually turned out was uh, lynch i think he shot the uh, pilot episode in 1999 and then had a falling out with the tv network abc over some of its content mm. so that was the end of that but then studio canal breezed in from france with a big pile of money and they said look we like what you've got so far we want you to take that and adapt it into a feature use what you've got film some more stuff and by that time i think abc had got rid of all of the props and costumes and all of the you know the the important bits and pieces that you need for continuity yeah and i think the fact that there was that clean break with what had come before meant that the film was able to unhinge in the way in which it unhinged and you know to it was all enormously to the good for how it turned out Mulholland drive itself is a street or a road really in uh, los angeles that winds along kind of out of Hollywood, very, very windy and treacherous road past a lot of large gated houses. And when you're on it, it kind of feels like a place of power and of secrets, particularly at night. Um, and danger. Yes, right, exactly, exactly. But weird sort of miasmic, hard to pin down danger. Um, and that's absolutely a, a, a feeling that runs all the way through this film. You have, it begins with a uh, uh, a young woman called Betty Elms, who's played by Naomi Watts, coming to Los Angeles, um, which she describes as a dream place, to become a movie star after winning a jitterbug contest back at home. She's, you know, she's on the up. She wants to make the most of her life, and she encounters in her, um, in 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 her, what is it? It's, it's kind of like an apartment in in this little complex that she's been loaned by a relative, by her aunt. Um, she encounters this anonymous woman who's played by Laura Elena Hanning. And this woman adopts the name Rita, which she sees on a poster for Gilda, uh, Rita Hayworth, the actress that starred in Gilda. That becomes her kind of temporary identity. And the first part of the film is mostly about Betty pursuing this dream of becoming an actress while also trying to work out what Rita's real identity is. Later in the film, the same two actresses play two different characters. Naomi Watts plays Diane Selwyn, who's a failed actress, and uh, Laura Elena Haring plays Camilla Rhodes, who's this influential star and socialite. Now, how you read how these two stories join together is the problem at the heart of Mulholland Drive. That you, it, the, the film challenges you to solve it when you mm. watch it. Now, there is... Still haven't. But that's the idea. Look, yeah. there's a school of thought that it is 100%... It's possible to completely tie up every loose end in this film and say this connects here. The, the abiding idea is that one story is true and the other story is false. Now, I think it's much more complicated than that. I think this it's this idea of this... Uh, William, long, long, long time before David Lynch was around, William Blake wrote a series of poems called Songs of Innocence and Experience. And the idea is that both innocence and experience depend on each other for... You know, they, they're kind of... They, they, one necessitates the other. One is not more right than the other. Both have things to offer. I think that's how Mulholland Drive fits together. It's an idea that Hollywood itself is a kind of a dream machine... And it creates these dreams by reflecting perfected images of ourselves back at ourselves that we prefer to reality and that we can kind of get lost in instead of getting lost in reality. And, you know, dreams and Lynch have always gone together hand mm. in hand. Here he's kind of, you know, he's using these figures from Hollywood history like the cowboy and the ingenue and the femme fatale. And he's kind of saying these are like almost like Jungian archetypes. So like, you know, these, these kind of myth figures like the shadow and the mentor that have been in stories for a long time. He's saying, you know, Hollywood has had such an effect on our collective subconscious 
that things like a cowboy can mean things collectively to us that aren't necessarily spelled out in who a cowboy is. And the, the same goes for Betty Helms, who is this ingenue coming to town, slightly Doris Day-like figure, you know, bright smile. Naive. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a scene in which she is rehearsing for, she's, she's auditioning for a part and she runs her lines at home in the apartment with Rita. And she gives this very, you know, perfectly nice, but quite twee reading of the lines. Now she goes for the audition and suddenly the performance that she gives is so extraordinarily good. It's like a wormhole opens up in the film and drops down to an alternate reality because mm. it's just so out of keeping with what we've seen before, but so incredibly compelling. It's almost saying other things are operating at the same time. There's another scene I want to talk about uh, involving a diner called oh. Winkies, which is the, <laughs> I think, the scariest... We put, we're not going to... We're going to play a clip, but don't switch off if you're scared of this bit, OK? Because... Well, we're not going to play the whole thing. This, even, even listening to this, yeah. terrifies me. Um, but here's, here's a clip of the Winky scene, which involves two characters who don't really have much to do. I think they don't have anything to do outside of this one scene. Mm. But it's still vital to the film. And this is, this is how the conversation begins. It's kind of embarrassing. I had a dream about this place. Oh, boy. You see what I mean? <laughs> okay. So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. It's the second one I've had. But they're both the same. They start out that I'm in here, but it's not day or night. It's kind of half night, you know? But it looks just like this, <laughs> except for the light. And I'm scared like I can't tell you. You're standing right over there by that counter. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are, and then I realize what it is. There's a man in back of this place. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. Oh, the rumble. Yeah, right. The sound design of this film is exquisite. The soundtrack is perfect. But what you the amazing thing about the sequence is it's it kind of breaks all the rules of horror filmmaking because you have two guys talking about what's going to happen they tell you what's you know what's in the dream yeah. there's no sort of hiding a, a jump scare or a punchline or anything it's all spelled out it's happening in broad daylight in a perfectly busy place and you're being told this isn't real this is something i've dreamt and yet the cumulative effect of it is terrifying and i have never been as unnerved in the cinema ever as when i saw that winky scene for the first time and that's why you know seeing mulholland drive on the big screen is so important because you need to feel this strange Los Angeles environment around you on all sides. And it's this idea that the Los Angeles we know from cinema is there, but it's also throbbing along strangely with the real sleazier, seedier, dirtier Los Angeles. Yeah. And no one version of that city is the correct version. It's all in flux and it's all trying to reconcile. It's almost like you've been presented with a jigsaw puzzle with too many pieces. And however you assemble it, there's always something left over. And that's what I love about my whole drive. You know, you see it once, you have to go back Again. and back and back. And you will never solve this film and you will because never it's not there to be solved. And you will never feel like you've seen all of it as well. No, it right. It doesn't matter how many times you see it. But one thing that we you mentioned very briefly, there was the soundtrack as well. Angelo Badlamenti's soundtrack for this is just exquisite. One of my favourite soundtracks ever. If, you, if you're looking for a nice soundtrack to listen to, then I'd suggest... That for sure. Uh, right, shall we go for DVD of the week? 
Dallas. It just reminds me of that. Right then, we've got uh, Adult Life Skills, Ballerina, Sully, Miracle on the Hudson, The Birth of a Nation, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, and We Still Steal the Old Way. I've got a few suggestions from people who think they know what you might go with. Catherine, it's got to be Sully. Miracle on the Hudson went through a roller coaster of emotions watching this top-notch performance by Hanks, who better to have us the, at the controls to make sure everything will be all right in the end. Paul Shaw says adult life skills all day. It was fantastic. That said, Birth of a Nation was a great watch too. Uncomfortable at times, but very good nonetheless. Paul Doherty, slim pickings this week, but I think Robbie should go for both The Red Queen Kills Seven Times and The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. Two wonderfully titled gothic classics. Uh, Rosie, adult life skills is fantastic. I was either laughing or crying throughout, often both. Antonio says, daughter loved ballerina. Rich, for me, it's Sully. Uh, landed with a real splash. Oh, <laughs> the bassoonist what? will likely pick one of the uh, movies that is just the kind of... One of the Miraglia movies. It's just the kind of guy he is, he says. Oliver thinks Sully too. I've got to go with adult life skills for me. I thought it was a great film. Uh, Rachel Turnard, was that her name that, that directed it? I think, wrote it and directed it. Jodie Whittaker, love her as well. I could watch her in anything. Right, what are you going with? I'm going with Sully. I was oh, one of surprised. not many critics who was behind Sully. I, I thought liked it was it a too. really terrific film. I think it's Eastwood's best film since Letters from Iwo Jima, which was back in 2006. Um, it's this idea, it's based, of course, on the true story of that emergency landing on the Hudson River by a passenger jet in 2009. But yeah. to me, the fact that Eastwood has dealt with this story at the very end of his career. It's like a reflection on what heroism means to him, how heroism can be fit into everyday, you know, the, the, our everyday lives. Um, the idea as well that something, a hero's instinct can come by with many, many years of practice. It can be something that's drilled into someone through, you know, long running expertise. Mm. Uh, that's absolutely how Eastwood makes films on an intuitive level that's been honed by years of experience. And I think he, to an extent, sees himself in the character of Chelsea Sullenberg. I think, you know, Tom Hanks also gives a tremendous performance yeah. in this. And it's also a film that takes, it's like um, The Walk or Man on Wire, these films about the World Trade Center uh, tightrope walk. Uh, it takes a horrific image, because of course, with World Trade Centers, airplanes flying through New York City, we think of 9-11. Yeah. It takes that image and redeems it through cinema and says, you know, this can be a force for something good. It can tell us something positive about humanity and it can show what happens when the best human instincts rather than the worst come together uh, to, to, to produce a kind of a memorable image. So, yeah, for me, Sully, Sully, Sully. You know how you were talking earlier about the Hatton Garden job and about it being, you know, kind of boring kind of thing? Yes. Uh, and I guess that an obvious thing with Sully is the thing that you'd expect it to focus purely on the event of what happened. But that's what's the brilliant. One of the brilliant things about it, I think, is the fact that it doesn't. It's what they had to deal with post event and what they went through as individuals and peoples and how they tried to deal with that and cope with that. As right. And then when the event comes around, you see it in a new light. Yeah, exactly. Very well structured. Wonderful. That was fun. Thank was. you so much for that. Um, you're back next week with Sanji or Beatty. Uh, and enjoy whatever you plan to do, whether you're still in Easter weekend listening to this or not. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you. <laughs>